just days before leaving office in January, ex-President Trump signed off on permits for the bidding of oil leases and the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve in Alaska. This is the northeast tip of that state. This is over 19 million square miles of pristine country inhabited by caribou, bison, polar, and other species of bear, and native plants that, uh, of course, nourish them. One of the first acts on becoming president, Joe Biden canceled that permission as part of a larger commitment to preserve the integrity of all undeveloped lands under federal protection. For a deeper understanding of this whole issue and the struggle to preserve pristine wilderness areas for future generations, to say nothing of the way of life of the indigenous inhabitants of those areas, I contacted Professor Deborah Williams of UCSB's Environmental Science Department, who has spent years in Alaska, knows the state and its ecology quite intimately, and has worked for the Bureau of Land Management and the Department of Fish and Game in the Clinton administration. She began with a reminder that those in the environmental movement avoid referring to the reserve by its acronym, only its full title will do. We avoid using the acronym ANWAR. <laughs> we like okay. to, just to let you know, we like to um, say every single word in the proper name of the refuge, and it is Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And we like to say all of those four words, one just to remind everyone that this is the Arctic, which is such a special and unique part of Alaska, that this is a national resource. Um, it is national public lands and everyone in the nation has an equal ownership stake in this area. Deborah then moved on to list the wondrously varied animal species native to the reserve and why they are part of the patrimony of all Americans, all humans really, whether they get to visit the reserve or not. The Arctic is the most fragile environment in the world. And the United States has only a small amount of Arctic lands to protect. The Arctic hosts species that do not exist anywhere else. And the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in particular is so rich in Arctic species, not only for their own intrinsic worth, but also because they are so important to um, the Gwich'in peoples, as well as to people who benefit from the migratory paths of many of the species in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I have been to the Serengeti, and I have been to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And the analogy between the Serengeti and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is a profound and accurate one, especially when the caribou, the porcupine caribou herd, are giving birth on the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This is, by all visual and biological comparisons, an extraordinary resource. It is America's Serengeti. 
a dwindling polar bear population has been forced more and more onto land off thinning Arctic ice. Meanwhile, porcupine caribou, their herds continue to make their annual spring migration to their birthing grounds, as they have done for around 20,000 years. The caribou are sacred to the Gwich'in people, the indigenous inhabitants of the reserve and its most ardent defenders. They do hunt the caribou in modest proportion, but they are fundamentally their human guardians. The caribou tie them to their ancestors and their ancestral traditions. The caribou migration is one of the great animal migrations on Earth, the other being that which takes place annually on the Serengeti Plain in Central East Africa, which explains Deborah Williams' reference. With respect to the Gwich'in, the Gwich'in peoples refer to the Arctic Refuge and particularly the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge as the place where life begins. For millennia, the Gwich'in peoples have relied on the caribou herd for their sustenance, for their identity, and for their very existence, both spiritually and physically. And so having a protected birthing place for the porcupine caribou herd is critically important for the Gwich'in peoples. We also all benefit in the United States from the birds that stage or eat or reproduce in the Arctic Refuge because they grace our skies and backyards throughout the nation. This is an area that President Eisenhower recognized should be protected. And he made sure that this area was reserved as a wildlife area prior to the state of Alaska being able to select lands for oil and gas development. And so this is an area that has been recognized for decades for its importance to all Americans because of its wildlife, cultural, spiritual, and other values. The Arctic Wildlife Reserve has actually been under government protection since the last years of the Eisenhower administration in the late 1950s. Eisenhower, who was a keen sports fisherman, recognized the value of this unspoiled stretch of land and the rare creatures that call it home. With the support of Congress, he placed the area under federal protection. Long before the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, which took place, of course, under Richard Nixon, and the extended powers granted the Bureau of Land Management and Fish and Game Protective Services. Deborah Williams recalls her work with Eisenhower's granddaughter, Susan, and the need to guarantee the protection of the Arctic Wildlife Reserve. One of my many highlights in defending this refuge for over 40 years was working with President Eisenhower's granddaughter, mm -hmm. Susan Eisenhower, who felt equally strongly that her grandfather's legacy should be protected. And I worked with her um, in her efforts to talk to and uh, convince members of Congress 
to continue protecting this area in one of the battles when it was close in terms of whether this area would be open for oil and gas development by Congress. And Susan Eisenhower was particularly effective with the Republican Senator Susan Collins. And it was she who sat down with Senator Susan Collins and convinced her to vote against opening up the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in one of the earlier battles. As for more recent history, the Trump administration pushed through to push through Congress, the so-called Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017. The only jobs envisioned, apart from the military in this act, were those in undeveloped oil fields, such as those in the Arctic Wildlife Reserve. Alaskan Senator Lisa Mielkowski, a key vote, was prevailed upon to include this provision at the last minute. She was pressured by the White House, fellow Senate Republicans, and of course, oil company lobbyists. The money to be raised from the proposed leases, calculated optimistically at $1.8 billion, would offset the taxes taken from vital social services nationally. Deborah Williams picks up the story. In 2017, Congress passed the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which of course, was primarily targeted to cutting tax rates for the rich. Because this legislation was part of the reconciliation process, senators could add items to this legislation and only needed 50 votes to get the legislation amendments passed. Ordinarily, with respect to legislation to open up the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the legislation could be filibustered in the past. So uh, you could pretty much be assured that you could get at least 40 votes to protect the refuge. But using the must pass in a lot of Republican minds, 2017 tax cut and Jobs Act, um, Senator Murkowski added to the bill a provision to open up the refuge to oil and gas development. Senator Murkowski relied on an estimate and Congress relied on an estimate that by opening up the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas development, that the federal government would generate $1.8 billion in revenue. And this amount of money was used theoretically in the calculation about the cost of the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act to offset the cost of the tax cut. So Senator Murkowski said, look, um, Congress will generate $1.8 billion by opening up the coastal plain, let's do that to offset these tax cuts for the rich. And tragically, 52 senators agreed with Senator Murkowski. To no one's surprise, the above revenue estimates were wildly out of whack. Only two obscure companies eventually bid on the leases, which yielded a scant $7 million. Major oil companies stayed away. Ex-President Trump 
signed the oil lease provision into law a mere two weeks before leaving office, strangely on January the 6th of this year. The first act of President Biden when he entered the Oval Office was to, in fact, pause that provision. Deborah Williams points out no president can actually cancel an act or part of an act of Congress with a mere stroke of the pen. It will be up to Congress to cancel any further lease sales in the area, and the sooner the better. The seeming lack of interest of the large energy companies in the first oil leases is a sign of the decline of the gas and oil exploration in the face of the rapid advance of green energy production in the areas of solar and wind. Market forces, which could choke off investment, could certainly prove the writing on the wall. The oil and gas industry is a dying industry. Its days are limited. No major oil company participated in this lease sale. No major oil company wanted to get within a thousand miles of this lease sale. Not only did they recognize that there is likely very little oil there based on prior, prior seismic work and also based on a well that was drilled on some private land in the area, but they also knew that the, their engagement in this area would be a public relations disaster. They don't want that. They haven't advocated to develop this area for a long time. And it underscores the folly of trying to lease this area from just purely an economic perspective. William shrugs off the state of public opinion in Alaska, which is largely supportive of development in the wildlife reserve. This compares to national opinion nationally over the whole country, which is solidly opposed. Unlike national polls, a majority of Alaskans are shown in all polls to support the development of the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. While this is an interesting data point, from many perspectives, it is irrelevant. These are national public lands. These okay. are not state or private lands. And so the state of Alaska owns over 100 million acres of land, the size of California. Hmm. When you add up the amount of land that every other state in the nation owns, it is less than the amount of land that the state of Alaska owns. The state of Alaska is doing fine. They have 100 million acres of their own land to develop or to protect or do whatever they want to do with it. Some of this land includes Prudhoe Bay and Kapark, which continue to produce oil and gas and a lot of revenues for the state of Alaska. The most determined opposition to any form of energy development on Alaska's North Slope comes from the Gwich'in people who see their whole history and their spiritual identity wrapped up in the migration of the caribou herd and the integrity of the land they of course live on. Those tribes on the other side of the issue opposed to the Gwich'in are in fact, Deborah Williams points out, 
really native corporations. Corporations controlled by other native tribes, but corporations nevertheless, who see financial advantage in oil and gas development. They have the support of the Alaskan congressional delegation, and no doubt the debate will continue until it becomes obvious that the companies themselves, the oil companies, have totally lost interest in drilling for oil in the North Slope for reasons listed above. Meanwhile, Deborah Williams will continue her advocacy on behalf of the environment, above all of the Alaskan North Slope, and of the animal and human life it sustains. She reminds us that the public can do a lot to weigh in on the issues such as this through education, uh, activism, communicating with their representatives, letters to the editors of local papers, and attendance at local meetings and discussion groups. For now, this is Harry Lawton reporting.